0: choir, we have been blessed by you and are watching you online, and Alan, we love your organ playing. God bless you. Thank you, all of you. A few years ago, I began uh, starting to introduce scripture before it's read in church. The reason is because United Methodists don't want to fess up, but they don't know their scripture. Amen? Oh, you know you don't know your scripture. Come on. If this was a Baptist church, I, we wouldn't have to do this. Let's it be clear. But in the Methodist church, I got to. So right now, we're about ready to read some scripture. Actually, Dane's going to read it to us. And there are two things you need to know. He's going to start talking about Peter. Now, who's Peter? Peter's the main man. He's the head apostle. He's the right-hand person to Jesus. He is an absolute go-getting, make-mistake, fall-on-his-face guy over and over again. Peter is in the beginning part of his own ministry, sharing the good news. That's who Peter is. You're going to hear about what happens to him in the story, but why it happens is because of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Greek God-fearer. That means to say he was somebody who loved God, who worshipped God, but didn't do so from the Jewish Christian perspective. He was an outsider. So basically, Peter and Cornelius were miles apart culturally. They didn't get along. Think Montrose and Birch Run. (laughs) And so There's no way in any other circumstance that Cornelius or Peter would ever get together. Except Cornelius bows to God and says, God, I just want to grow deeper with you. I want to love you more. I want to serve you more faithfully. Help me to do that. And God decides what he's going to do is send to Cornelius Peter. So he says to Cornelius, I need to get some of your people together. There's this guy I want you to go and bring to your house. He's going to teach you some things you need to know. Well, we already know peter doesn't want to go to a place like that to a guy like that and so this happens
1: scripture book of acts chapter 10 verses 9 through 16 About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened, and something like a large sheet coming down being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again. A second time. What God has made clean. You must not call profane. This happened three times. And the thing was suddenly. Taken up to heaven. The word of God. For the people of God. To
0: God. Would you join me in prayer? Good and loving God, it is by your grace alone, it is by your presence in this world, in this place, and in our lives by which this service has its power and its hope. Speak through and beyond my words into the depths of each of our lives, there to be revealed, blessed, and empowered. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Who's, I'm sorry, I've gotten to the age where I have to ask these questions. Who's the person who just did the presentation on the, on the screen? Your name? Ken? Ken, thank you. I think you are one of the funniest guys I've ever met in my life. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, Ken, that I have a full manuscript in front of me. Because I always do that just because I don't ramble too bad, you know. Here's how my sermon starts. Shortly after tying the knot, a young couple started arguing over who should make the coffee. <laughs> you took my story, Kat! <laughs> it's a great story! It's a funny line! But you used it already! And I'm sitting down here dying. What am I gonna do now? And I decided the funniest thing was to tell you how terrible of a moment that was for me. That was too good. God just (laughs) laughed. So why do clergy start sermons off with jokes? There are several reasons. It's one of the longest-standing traditions in all of Christendom. The first reason is because, unfortunately and oftentimes erroneously, we think we're funny. (laughs) And we're not. Some of us are stalling because we know we're about to preach a clunker. And we want to make you happy for at least a few minutes before you have to sit through what you're going to have to endure. And some of us understand that, quite frankly, we try to tell jokes because we get the fact that God often revealed truth through humor. God is a funny God. Think about it. Come on. Abraham and God are having a conversation. And God says to Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child, and they are long past collecting Social Security. And Sarah peeps out of the tent and says, say what? (laughs) And she laughs because it's a silly idea. And God says, why'd you laugh? And on it goes. And of course, God got the last laugh there. I've always loved this, the Pentecost story, you know, when the church is born and the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers and they all start whooping and dancing and hollering and praising God and the people outside say, what is wrong with those crazy people? I think they're drunk. And Peter comes back and says, they can't be drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, which I always thought was a pretty slim excuse, to be honest with you. Quite frankly, I thought he could come up with something better than that. And then there's a story about Peter who's preaching a sermon in a packed room on the third floor of a building, so packed that there were some sitting in the window. And he preaches and he preaches and he preaches and he preaches. And people start falling asleep. Do you know what I'm talking about, church? (laughs) And while he's preaching, there's this guy in the window, Eutychus, who falls so dead asleep, he falls out of the window three stories Lands and kills himself. Now that's funny. So Peter, horrified, runs out, picks up the body, brings him up, brings him back to life, and then starts preaching again. God is a funny God, and God's people are funny too. That last story, by the way, is the reason why you will find most churches still today have the sanctuary on the ground floor, just (laughs) so you know that. So Jeremy says, hey, would you come preach for me at Court Street? Jeremy, I'd be honored to do that. Hey, Jeremy, Rick, by the way, um, we're preaching a series. Can you fit in? Sure, Jeremy. What's it about? Humor. Oh, good. (laughs) Now I don't have to preach well. I have to be funny, too well, I'm not going to be promising I'll be good or funny, but I'm going to give my best attempt to bring this story to life to you. You see, God knows a Greek man named Cornelius. He is generous. He cares for others. He serves others with love. He's one of these people who doesn't follow the theological outpinnings of what it means to be a Christian, but he sure looks pretty good to me and to God. And Cornelius says, Jesus, I really want to get closer to you. I want to be even a better man. Can you help me? God's got a lot of things going on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set it up so Cornelius goes to get Peter to come and witness to him. Now, Peter's not going to go. For all the reasons I said earlier. And this vision comes to Peter. It's noon. He's tired. He's hungry. He dozes off while lunch is being made. And while he dozes off, he sees this image. It's like as if a sheet were coming down from heaven. I always thought they can't even get that specific in the Bible. It wasn't a sheet. Was it like a sheet? What was it? I don't know. But on top of it was all kinds of food that was not allowed for the Jews to eat. Now, you remember the dietary laws of the Jews. That was there as a spiritual discipline. I mean, it really was their identity. I know I'm a Jew because I can't eat this, but because I eat this. And it really was a wonderful gift to them. But sometimes it became a stumbling block. And for Peter, it was a stumbling block. He said, I can't eat any of this food. Now, he's looking at the food. Now, I know exactly where my head went. I don't know what was all on that piece of tablecloth or whatever, or sheet. But I promise you there was a pig there. God is offering to Peter for the first time to have bacon. Now, he says, you can take any of these animals and you can have it to eat. Now, you've got to go kill it because there was no Kroger Deli back in the day. That's just how it was. But you get to have bacon. And Peter says, no, Lord, I can't eat any of these things. Did you get that picture? God says, Peter, you can have any of that. Peter says, no, God, I can't have any of that because I don't eat that so I can be closer to you. Do you understand? God's going, it happened three times. Peter was so dense. Peter was so wound up and doing it the right way, he couldn't see the joy and the humor and the gift of grace that was being offered to him. So finally, he gets the fact that maybe I need to open up my eyes in the way I think. So when Cornelius' people came by to get him, he went. And there was this great encounter between Peter and Cornelius because Peter had his eyes opened that maybe he needed to quit being so rigid, so stuck. I know something about being Peter. We get stuck in the way we think things have to be. In my second church, it was our first Sunday, and the church had done a wonderful job of welcoming myself and Laura, my wife, and our two very, very, very young children. They had, you know, done the nice things in worship, said nice things about me, and we were going to have a potluck afterwards, and we were looking forward to that. And I went after the service which we, where we shared communion and the whole bit. I went to the back door to greet people like I was supposed to do, and I greeted everybody. They went down to potluck. I came back through the sanctuary so that I could take off my robe and go downstairs. I'm coming through the sanctuary, and I look up to the front of the church, where the communion elements are still there, and I saw a tradition that had obviously been part of this church for a long time. After communion was done, and the last hymn was sung, and a benediction was given, in that church a tradition was the very young children got to run up and scarf down all the leftover bread and juice that was up there as if they were ravenous dogs. I was mortified. I was trained at Duke University, the proper way to dispose of communion elements. I never said, let the kids rat take it over like they were crazy. And I was about to go screaming nuts at them, but I knew enough I probably shouldn't do that on my first day. <laughs> but I realized I was getting angry over the children in the church eating up the bread and the juice. I was getting angry at the children In the church, do you hear me, church? I was getting angry at children being comfortable in this place of worship, feeling like they were as equal to everyone else, to come on up and be in a place where they were safe and loved, and I was getting angry at them. God worked a miracle and made me shut up and just go downstairs to the potluck. And God laughed at my foolishness. Communion is a place that oftentimes brings about humor, i found, because it's that powerful place of emotion. And a lot of times, I don't know, probably Court Street's not like this, but, you know, some other churches. You know, those other places. You know, they take communion so seriously. They come forward as if it's like, you know, sort of kind of a funeral kind of a thing. And if you're going to bring emotions out, you've got to bring out your sad emotions, because that's, you know, we're... Sad and repentful and whatever. But I think communion is meant to be a place like any table where, well, you bring who you are and what you have. And some days it's sadness, and some days it's funny, and some days it's tradition. So in my last church, we took communion by intinction. Intinction, okay, you have the chalice, you take a piece of bread and you dip it into the cup. That's how you're supposed to do it. And on this given Sunday, we had the laity out here, you know, two by two. One had a cup and one had the bread. And people came up, took the bread, dipped the cup, went back. Everybody in the congregation is pretty well trained to know how to do that. Rarely did we have slip-offs. But on this Sunday, I'm right here in the middle watching things go on, and I see this tandem here serving the bread and the cup. And this woman, we'll call her Mary, because there are people from Clarkston here today, and I want to protect those who are being identified. (laughs) We'll call her Mary. She's holding a cup, and I watch this woman come down the center aisle. She comes over in front of the station, and I see she makes the sign of the cross. Ah, she's Catholic. She takes the bread in her hand and then eats it. She wasn't supposed to eat it, She's supposed to dip it, so she came over to the cup to reach over so that she can drink from the cup. Mary is trained; don't let people drink from the cup. You see, Mary's hands get tighter around the cup, and the woman grabs the cup to drink it, and then there becomes this tug of war between the body, the blood of Christ. She's wanting to drink it. She doesn't want, Mary doesn't want her to drink it. And this is going on. And I get this image in my mind that the woman who wants to drink it is saying, "Just I want the blood of Jesus. And Mary's bubble says, but you've got germs. <laughs> and so they're fighting over this cup. And finally, her partner takes another hunk of bread, slides it around to the face of this Catholic woman, and sort of said some words to say, here's what you do. So she took it, dips it, and the battle is ended. The only thing I could hear after that was the giggling of the choir who could see all of this happen, and they loved watching this unfold. All the while, I'm sure that God rolled her eyes and once again just laughed at our foolishness. You see... Sometimes we get so locked in to the way it ought to be, to the somberness of our faith, to the parts of our faith that really do make us move to tears, that we forget. God speaks in the midst of laughter. Throughout all of Scripture, including Acts, there are moments that if you step back and read them from another perspective, that are just hysterical. And yes, sometimes maybe being a little irreverent is where you open up the possibility for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. In Scripture, that is true. In life, that is true. You know that humor is medicine, right? If you can get someone to laugh, you change everything about them, including them physiologically. And real comedians, you know, the stand-up comedians who actually do it know this. There are two things that have to happen for people to laugh. There has to be proximity. We have to be next to each other. We have to be with each other. We have to be in the same room. We've got to make a connection with each other. You've got to have a sense that you know me, and I've got to have a sense that I get to know you. We have to have some sense of proximity where we can connect with each other. And then there's got to be a sense of intimacy that I can talk with you about things that you know about, that you care about, and see them in a slightly different way. And when we have proximity and intimacy, that's where laughter occurs. That's where comedians do their best work. That's where God does God's best work. When God gets close to us, in the same room with us, in the same story with us, and in that moment knows us, and in that intimacy, we laugh, we feel loved, we feel good. Throughout the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, God has reached out in ways that are poignant and hysterical, and this is the God we serve. One of the people who got that right in his life was Jim Valvano. He was the former coach for NC State basketball. He once told a story. He was coaching the basketball team on the sidelines, and a ref came by. He said, "Hey, ref." Can you give me a technical file for what I'm thinking? The ref said, no. Vavano said, well, good, because I think you stink. <laughs> and he gave him a technical. <laughs> but of course, where he really got it right was in his most famous speech. Facing his own death from cancer, he said this simply. To have a good day, there are three things you must do. You have to laugh. You've got to find a reason to laugh every day. You've got to think. Take some time just to think. Use the brain. God gave it to you. And every day, there should be a reason for your emotions to move you to tears. And if you can laugh and think and cry in a day, that's a good day. That's a full day. That's the United Methodist way of seeing the world. We laugh. And in all my years of leading and teaching staffs, I've come to discover that with staffs, with teams, with congregations, with families, the ones that are the healthiest are the ones who laugh the easiest with each other. You laugh well with each other. You think and you consider things from the perspective that God has. And you're changing the world because of it. And you weep. Because there's enough reason to weep, isn't there? That's a full day. That's a holy day. That's the day that God is using to bless us. So Court Street, laugh. Laugh. And think and cry and continue to be God's people. In the name of the one who makes it so,
1: amen and amen.